Hello and welcome to The Crux of the Matter, the show by pastors, for pastors. My name is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And I'm Pastor Scott Stigmeyer. And we are here today to talk about the doctrine of the call, particularly how do pastors, uh, first of all, what is a call? How do, uh, how do pastors deal with this process? How do you come to a decision? Who do you deform, inform and when? How long should you take? All those sort of topics. Um, this is kind of uh, personal for you right now, Scott. So why don't you uh, take it away? Yeah, the doctrine of the call, that's certainly a relevant topic for all pastors and indeed in our denomination, all commissioned church workers who receive calls. And what we mean by that in in our parlance is that we're referring to a divine call on, in my case, a pastor to serve in one position or another. And a call can come from a con- usually the call comes from a congregation. They're calling you to be their pastor, or make or an associate pastor or whatever, or DCE such and such like that. Sometimes the call can come from another church entity. It could be a school. It could be um, to become a missionary. These are all divine calls. We believe that God is the one who calls us into service. But not that he does so directly like he did with Moses and, and many of the prophets where they received a vision or an apparition or a voice from heaven, but rather that God works through means, which is his ordinary mean way of working. He works through means to call uh, individuals, and that means is through the church. He, he works through the church to call individuals. And I actually am a pastor right now in Elmhurst, Illinois, very happily so. But I also have received a call to be a professor of theology at Concordia Irvine. So I'm deliberating that and going through that process myself right now. Yeah, and God's blessings to you on that deliberation. Obviously, we're not going to talk about your call here. That's uh, <laughs> that that is your you business, bet. and uh, and I and I definitely don't want to interfere with that. But we can talk about what the sort of what the theology, the call is. Um, I have, I have received maybe uh, three or four calls since I've been a pastor, something like that, and uh, and mm-hmm. accepted two after my ordination. The first was to my uh, uh, to my first congregation, Messiah and Kenosha, and the second about three and a half years ago, almost four, to Holy Cross here in Rockland. So I've. I've gone to the through the process a few times. How how many calls do you think that you've gotten since you were ordained? Any idea? Well, there's um I you know, I'd have to think about it for a minute, but I've especially early in my ministry, I got several calls right. to different places. When I was a pastor in Pittsburgh, I did get a couple of different occasions. And sometimes I think perhaps even a lot of the time you know that it's it, you're being considered. Right. But other times, other times you don't. I mean, I have gotten calls where I didn't know anything about it until someone phoned me some Sunday afternoon and saying, our church in the middle of Peoria, Illinois, or wherever, has elected you as our pastor and the paperwork's on the way. Uh, that has happened to me, where I had no knowledge of them at all. Um, I've had that, but I think, I think that's, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's more and more un- unlikely yeah, to occur. Yeah, I agree. Usually, what they'll 
they'll put out um, what we jokingly call divine <laughs> right. feelers in advance, where where they where they'll just say, "Are you are you willing to be considered for our call?" As someone recommended your name, or or your district president put your name on our list, or something like that, and would you be willing? So usually you you have an inkling that it might that you might get something. Um, but sometimes it, it still can happen. I don't know. I don't know how many I've had, but the most interesting thing that occurred to me in this way was that I did get a call one time when I was a pastor in Pittsburgh, I got a call to a church in Detroit and that one was an out of the blue thing. I didn't know about it. Someone up there in that parish knew me and had put my name on the list and I visited and I ended up returning, which is our word for declining the call. I, I returned. <laughs> they the wanted you. And they turned around and they called me again. They called me a second time. They did. And I, and I said no again because I, w- I had only been in my parish, you know, for a couple of years. And I was a new, I was new to parish ministry and I wasn't looking to leave and so on and so forth. But I did take it seriously. I didn't just sort of blow it off either time. Um, that's that's a whole part of our discussion too. It's just simply, what do you, you know, what's the process of deliberating? How do you how do you make sense of it? Should we talk about um, the process prior to receiving the call, or should we uh, should we just deal with what happens once you get it? Well, what do you mean? Well, um, you know, you mentioned the divine feeler thing. Uh, most of the time, in my experience, at least today, most of the time when people are, uh, are deliberating calls now, they, they get, it's after the process of an interview or maybe even several interviews. I can remember, I can remember one case where I was, um, called to be an associate pastor at a church that, uh, that also had a school. And so the the position was kind of was really half associate pastor, half headmaster at this at this school. And they did a phone interview and then they actually flew me out there and interviewed me um, prior to calling me. And it and it frankly was weird because mm-hmm. I felt like I was uh, sneaking around my congregation. It was almost like I was cheating on them by even yeah. uh, entertaining the conversations. And and for me, that's that's a part of what makes the whole process of the call as we do it in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod tricky is that um, is that there is such a strong sense of ownership and love between the pastor and the congregation, which is good. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, I am called by the church, and and I'm enough of a uh, uh, I'm enough of a Lutheran to at least believe that the church is is not simply only exclusively the local congregation. I'm sorry if that you know makes me a bad guy, but and so I have an obligation to ask how am I best going to be able to serve the church, and that uh, to me I, I don't have a problem with interviews. In fact. Anymore, I think congregations probably have an obligation to interview people they're considering calling. I, it's hard for me to imagine why a congregation would not do that. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and I think, and correct me if I'm historically wrong, but 
um, I think the idea of an interview sounds like a secular thing. It sounds like it's yes. a secular job that you're interviewing. It might even sound like the pastor is courting something. Right. Um, there, there does, there does. Uh, I know what you mean because I've been through this too. Yep. Where you know there does feel like you're hiding something from your current church, which you you are. I mean, you're not you're not telling them that fact that you've gone off to be interviewed somewhere, right? Um, but if I'm correct on the history of the thing, I can remember Robert Price talking about how it used to be the case that um, if a church was considering a pastor, they would send a commission, a group, to his current church to listen to him preach. You know, so if if yep. that's not an audition or if that's not an interview of a sort, then I don't know what is. I mean, that is still a you know. I, so I think that it's changed shape a little bit. It's changed format. I haven't had anybody ask me to give them you know preach a sample sermon in front of them, but nowadays, of course, you know, with uh, social media, people can check out your sermons probably online and see if they think you're uh, – the, the purpose of it, as Robert Preuss would explain it, was not to say, is this guy a really dynamic person? Is he a really – is he going to draw in the kids? Is he a really great you know, personality? Right. But to test his orthodoxy. We want to know – we want to know that he preaches law gospel. We want to know that he preaches Christ crucified. And that, you know, he can say that on a piece of paper that he does that, but we want to actually hear him preach or speak to him in person to see how he comports himself in an interview. Yeah. And that's, um, uh, I know that in, in Germany, for instance, prior to uh, Walther and, and all of the Saxon immigrants coming over, um, I know that you essentially had a consistory that would do interviews for a candidate who was being considered. They would listen to trial sermons. Um, they would interview him. It may be that the uh, you know that the prince or regent or whomever. Uh, it was actually an extensive process of, uh, and, and that was about testing the uh, testing the theological character of the person. I kind of think that today, what is difficult when it comes to interviews is is exactly that is how does this not just become the pastor trying to sell himself to this calling committee and the calling committee trying a little bit at least to sell themselves to the pastor it, it it's messy but there is no question that it is a messy messy sure. process Well, and then, and I totally agree. And having been through the process, I know that there are temptations. And, you know, sometimes you might be tempted by, oh, this looks like a more attractive situation than the current situation I have. Or, ooh, this looks like a richer parish. I bet they pay more. Or, you know, I mean, th those temptations exist for, for sure. But I would always just kind of come right. to this question. Well, what are the, what's the alternative method? Um, right. Do we, you know, are we going to cast lots? Is that what we're going to do? Or are we, or are we going to have bishops who simply make the decisions for us? I, I don't know that there's a, a, a better way while the way we do it has, has weaknesses and can be abused and yep. can be done badly and probably is a lot of the time because we're sinful humans. 
But I, I'm not. Sh- I, if, I, if if someone would propose a, a superior method, yeah, I'm and, certainly uh, all ears. And if I had a, a superior method, I would be uh, uh, I would be making a lot of money. But there, because you're absolutely right, there are there are pitfalls on on any direction. Historically, yeah. I think it's fair to say that our current process of calling pastors, kind of the, uh, it, which is very. Uh, congregational, congregation-centric, I, th- I think it's fair to say that our current uh, process of calling pastors is uh, somewhat novel in the history of the church. Um, it's, uh, well, uh, I mean, realistically, for most of the because history we don't of the church, you had some kind of, of uh, episcopal polity, some sort of episcopal system where you had a bishop that was moving uh, pastors right. around much more so, and that the and and there was certainly a process of consent, so that the pastor would consent, um, and the congregation would consent. So, I mean, it's not, uh, at least in my reading and understanding, it's not that it was dictatorial, but that it was still. Uh, that there was someone else making those decisions, kind of the initial decision. Maybe we could put it that way. Um, and I can definitely see some advantage to that. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, yeah, there yeah. are some serious disadvantages to that, too. Um, I don't know. I think uh, <laughs> I think that if we tried to go down the rabbit hole of, of, uh, of polity, we'd be here for days. And while that might be worth doing at some point, uh, I think we should move on. Um, so, so once you get a call, you have uh, okay. you have I received agree. a call. Um, Any more today that usually involves a telephone call, um, although not always. Sometimes you can just literally get get a packet of stuff in the mail. It can be an envelope, but in my experience, at least, it's usually uh, a phone call. Along the way, um, what happens next? Well, you get a once you receive. This is how I do it. I mean, if I receive a phone call on an after, it's usually a Sunday afternoon because what has happened is Church X has had a voters meeting that day, and they voted to call you, and then the president of the congregation or the circuit counselor gets on the horn and phones you up just to inform you of this. And you, like I said, you may be, have been aware that you were on this list, um, but then you've been informed. And I usually don't um, say anything. Other, um, of course, I tell my wife. The actual paperwork. Family, but I don't say anything publicly until yeah. I receive the document in hand. When I have an actual that's my thing. Once I get the actual paperwork that says I have a call to where, and um, then I make first thing I tell the first people I tell are my own congregation, and simultaneously I'm informing my bishop, my district president, my circuit counselor, so that. But I I don't I don't want I don't want my circuit. I and, you know maybe there's a rule that I'm breaking somewhere in here, but I think my congregation needs to hear it first. And then my circuit counselor will hear it, and and probably my bishop will hear it via email or a f- quick phone call or something. Um, so the very next Sunday, the very next, you know, that's normal, is the very next Sunday is to announce you've received a call. And usually, 
to not sit on it for a very long time. It's advisor it's advisable not to just say, okay, I'm going to be deliberating for three months. And in that period of time, both your current church and your, the calling church are in limbo wondering whether or not you're their pastor still. So what's a reasonable yet. length of time? I'm not sure what, what, what you would say, Todd, but I usually say for the typical situation, I think if you can't make a decision in a month, if you if if four weeks is not enough time, then you should then you should decline. You should return it. I think that that in most situations you should be able to make a decision in a, in a month's time. Now, if it's the if it's like you're going to be called to be a missionary to Papua New Guinea, that might be a much more complicated. Sure, right. De- that, there's a lot more to that process. Right. It's going to affect your family a lot more, a lot differently, and you're going to want to know more information, and that might require a longer period of deliberation. But in most cases, I think – that's my opinion, a month or less. What is is that what you would yeah, say? Yeah, I'd say a month. I I think that – if – I guess that and, – and first off, there is no law about this. Right. There is what is uh, – what is reasonable – and and I think a month is probably reasonable. I would try. I would probably lean closer to three weeks than a month. Um, probably yeah. the variable there is if you're going to visit. Um, if you go yeah. and uh, yeah. if you go and visit, uh, then then that in, requires travel time and uh, you know all of those arrangements that have to be done. But three weeks to a month, yeah, that's probably it's probably about right. Um, and if I may add, in, a related but slightly different angle on that is that once you've announced your decision, if you say you're going to leave, then you should, I believe, you should leave fairly quickly. Oh, I don't think absolutely. You, you don't stick around for another six months or a year or, you know, yeah. you know I'm going to take this call. Because then the people that you're serving currently start to get resentful. They start to get angry that, you're, you know, there might be bitterness. It's, and I don't mean leave overnight without saying goodbye. Right. But, um, you know, it's best not to linger a really long time. And so to make your decision known and then in a fairly, you know, fairly ready manner, hit the road and um, say goodbye and, and leave gracefully. Sure. But 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 don't just st- stick around for very long. I I remember quite vividly when I uh, when I left Kenosha Messiah, I announced that I was leaving. I think it was on June first, and we weren't able, because of my wife's work. We weren't able to physically move until the first week of August. So that was it was a solid right. two months, and that was really really hard it was hard for us it was mm-hmm. hard for the kids it was hard for it was really hard for both congregations because messiah was ready to mm-hmm. move on and start the process of you know figuring out how to call another pastor holy cross my current parish was was ready to receive me and kind of get going they you know you build up so much excitement and everything with calling a pastor and then to have to kind of sit and wait for two months it was very difficult. So I, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, Once you made yeah. a decision, you need to not look back. And that's tough. It's very tough. 
It is, it is. And I think, you know, it's, it's something Jesus said too, right? I mean, put your hand to the plow, yeah. don't look back. You know, you just move forward with it and do, do so not – I mean, I have seen where pastors leave within a week or something, and I think maybe you need to give them – your your congregation – and it depends on everybody's circumstances different, but it, I, your congregation does need a little bit of a chance of time to mourn yep. and grieve. And I'm assuming that it's a healthy departure and not – a departure because you're under tremendous right. not a forced departure or, which is a whole um, nother topic not a forced exit that's a whole different set of beans and if it's if it's a, a regular healthy departure they, they're going to be mourning they're going to be some people who want you to stay they're going to be some people who are glad you're leaving and then most people in between are going to have mixed emotions but they're going to want to move forward into the future and that's uh and that's reasonable i think so that's so there is a there is a, a tension there. No, no question about it. So I, I think that the real money issue with this whole discussion is the question of how do you actually come to a decision? What is the what's the process? Do you talk to people? Do you lock yourself up in your in your study with your Bible for a month? Can you? Uh, is it even reasonable to look at things like income or weather or schools for kids or you know any of that stuff i uh i it, it amazes me how different that decision process is for us today than i think it was 100 years ago or 125 years ago when more or less every congregation in the missouri synod had a parochial school and while not every single congregation was speaking German. It was most of them still. Uh, you had a very homogenous group, and the uh, the the ministry distinctions, the different types, and the people you were ministering to, and all of these other things were were nowhere near as varied as they are today. I don't think. Um, so uh, I wonder how much that decision making process has changed, and and how much it. I know for me, it's it is the hardest thing I have ever done is making those decisions on both sides. Yeah, I always joke that the most died in the wool Lutheran becomes sort of a Pentecostal when it comes to deliberating a call. You know, because what do you what are we what are we saying? If we're just saying this is a spiritual thing, you know, it's discerning the will of the Lord and. That is true. I don't. I'm not making fun of that position. It is discerning the will of the Lord, but you know, are you waiting for some inner movement in your heart? Are you waiting for some kind of still right. small voice in your brain uh, that you believe is the Holy Spirit speaking to you directly? Uh, I think that that is a kind of spiritualism that is un incompatible with Lutheranism. So I think what you do is you both pray. And investigate the because you are not just a soul, you are not just a spirit that's kind of fluttering around. You also are a man with with a body and have you have bodily needs that includes your health, that includes it, for many of us it includes a family. I was I was called by God to be a husband and father before I yeah, was called by right. God to be a pastor. Not that I, that these things are in competition or anything like that. But I have a divine call. I have more than one divine calling in my life, and so their role has to be pl taken into consideration. Now, I do want to take a slight. I want to take a slight issue with you there. 
and that and that is, I think that okay, they go. are in competition, and the reason that they're in competition is because of sin. Um, sin makes it so that I do not, by nature, I can I do not completely trust in God above all things, and so my I look at taking care of my family, and I don't and I don't trust that God is going to take care of them or I struggle with it. And I don't, and maybe even more concretely, I don't trust that the congregation calling me is going to help me take care of that. And, and at this. Well, and that's true. No, I was just going to say, but, but we have to use reason. I think this is where we as Lutherans tend to get scared is because we think, yep. you know, damned reason, right? We just can't trust human reason because it's corrupted by sin. Well, you can't right. trust your intuition either, and you can't trust your heart. for Right. Yeah, I mean, that's way better, obviously. Heart, that's ridiculous. So, yeah, that's, that's way better. So, you know, God does say, trust in me above all things. But let's say a congregation calls me, and they're going to pay me $1,000 a month. Or nine hundred dollars a month, and I have got. Let's say I'm. Let's say I have four or five kids. Do I? Am I really saying that? Okay, God, you told me to trust in you to provide for you. Yeah, they're not going to pay me any money, um, but um, I'm going to trust in you to miraculously provide for me. I think yep. that's putting God to the test. I had a classmate in seminary uh, that that would say Jesus came to take away our sins, not our brains. And, uh, and I think that's yes. exactly what you're talking about yes. is that we do have to look at what are the, what are the circumstances both, of both congregations, of my family, um, possibly of extended family. Um, is this going, to, uh, is this going mm-hmm. to both make use of and stretch my own skills as a pastor um, is it going to be a good fit if, if for instance, um, I were to go to a yep. congregation where I would be expected to do 50 shut-ins a week, um, that would be a terrible fit for me because I really struggle with the stress of doing those. Um, and that's not that I don't do them, but, but yep. that, would be, that would be crazy for me to take a call like that. Um, that would not be playing to my strengths at all. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, – I had a I had a I had a professor or someone right. that we both admire, Cameron McKenzie, uh, former you know for us one of our seminary profs when we were in school, and I actually yep. had a situation where I had two calls at once. I actually had I mean I was on staff at the seminary and then I got I think I remember this two different churches okay within days of each yeah within days of each other. And so I could either stay where I was. I had three choices. I could stay where I was or I could go to the one or I could go to the other. And his advice to me was, look, once you've weighed all the pros and cons, once you've done this and you, you know, and you obviously you're, you're, you have to be conscious of, okay, well, I'm not just going to take the one with the, where I'm going right. to have the best car. Right. All right. If your goal is purely greed, first of all, you are in the wrong line of work, buddy. Yes, yes. That and 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 so you got to be aware of that. But what his advice to me and I'll never forget was he said he said Scott weigh the pros and cons, then make a decision, then trust God to bless you. 
And I think that I think that's the only I think that's the answer. Sometimes just make the decision, weigh the pros and the cons, talk to people, absolutely get input from other people. God works through his church, he works through his people. Let the wisdom of others help guide you. And that and sounds pretty Lutheran to me. Decision, trust that, him to bless I'm him. I I'm comfortable with that. That that makes that makes sense that yeah. there is no sort of magic formula of how this process works. That's for sure. It, there is no – I'm yep. not sure there would be a wrong answer. I, I don't know. I, that Maybe you could say there might be a wrong answer, but, but, sure. um, no, but no, th- yeah. there may not – there may be more than one right answer. And, uh, and so, you know, the $1,000 a month scenario, uh, uh, looking at my family and looking at, you know, and everything else, that's a situation where I couldn't – I could not live on that. We would not be able to do that. That would be irresponsible for me to take a call like that, given given my place in life and my other vocations. Um, however, there are other times when I can look at these two congregations and think, you know, both of these yeah. would work fine. I I would be perfectly happy in both places. Um, they both of them would be good for my family. Both of them. Would be just fine. I could almost flip a and, coin, and and neither of them would be. And I have another another just re, the, maybe the last thing. I I have another piece of advice that I received from a good friend of mine and a good friend of yours too, Pastor Peter Ledick. Years ago, he said, "When you are serving a church, and if you get another call to serve another church or go somewhere." And and he said, unless there's a compelling reason to leave, he felt that it's it's better to stay. Unless there's a compelling reason for you to take the new call, it's it's probably better to stay. And I have used that. I, I you know I don't know if I would make that a divine command, but I would I have used that piece of wisdom in my different times when I've had to wrestle with this, and I've told that to other people too. Yeah, and and there's definitely wisdom in that. Um, asking the uh, asking the question, and of course, why there's there's both a push and a pull on a on a question like that. Uh, you may look at at your current situation and say, you know, um, I have done what I what I believe that I am capable of doing here. This congregation is in a good place. They we have a, a, an Orthodox group of elders and the and the, so they would call another faithful pastor. That's all good. Um, or I could look at it and say, you know, they have some challenges coming up that I'm not sure that I am the right person to deal with these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe I maybe this is a good opportunity for the congregation to get somebody yeah. else. Um, and at the same time, there can be a pull that uh, another congregation may may have opportunities that that you can look at and believe that you would have something to contribute toward. And a part of that too, I think, is is being being honest and realistic with your own skills, uh, not a false humility. Um, but an, an an true humility is recognizing things as they yeah. are, not as not as you think they should be or someone else expects them to be. Uh, you can recognize what your what your skills and abilities and strengths and weaknesses are to a greater or lesser extent, and and I think you have to at least those have to be a part of the decision making process. Totally agree. 
Totally agree. Hmm. So, so we kind of end this with once you have made a decision, you inform both congregations um, and and all of the relevant people. There is a uh, a window where you're kind of a I don't know a lame duck pastor basically, mm-hmm. uh, where you can't really. It's difficult to do anything. Uh, certainly, you can't affect any sort of change. You're you're almost. It's almost like once you have accepted a call somewhere else, now you're a vacancy mm-hmm. pastor for your own congregation. At least that's how it felt to me. Like uh, this was no longer my you're home. You're a placeholder. Um, you're a placeholder. Yeah, and that's all the more reason why. Uh, the sooner you you accept that call, the more the sooner you're reasonably able to move on. The better it's going to be for everyone yeah, involved. Yeah. Hmm. Well, God's blessings to you on your hey, deliberation thank, thank process. You, um, I think we can move to our uh, friend of the show. And before we s- started recording, uh, you and I were talking a little bit about what do we mean by friend of the show. Um, I don't know. Maybe that isn't the right term. Um, maybe we should make it something more like people we think you should listen to or pay attention to. I don't know. We'll we'll have to come up. We'll have to put that through the uh, the pithy machine to see if we can come up with a better title yeah. for it. Um, who is our friend of the show for this week, Scott? Well, we decided to pick. Um, uh, in the past, I think a lot of the people that we've talked about have been people that are in Lutheran media of some kind either writing or podcasting or radio themselves. But this time we're going to talk about Dr. William Weinrich. Dr. Weinrich teaches early church history at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, and he teaches other classes too. He's taught classes on John. He's taught classes in the systematics department about God and creation. I'm not sure what all courses he teaches these days. And he writes too, and he's written some, he's written some articles. I wish he would write more. But he is one of, and we don't say this in any way to diminish the importance and influence of all the other seminary professors that we love. But we want to highlight Dr. Weinrich today because we both feel that he possesses a, an insight and a wisdom, not to mention brilliance, not brilliant knowledge of the early church. But he's, it's possible to be brilliant in a subject, but not really see very well how it connects to human lives. And I have found in my friendship and, and um, my, he's sort of a mentor to me in some ways, I guess that he really does. he, He really does know how to do that. He does know how to take what might seem to be complex, abstract theological, you know, considerations and apply them to real human lives and and contemporary problems in the church. And that's really just a rare skill. So we wanted to highlight him for that. Did you have some comments you wanted to make? About yeah, connecting. I, I've always I've always found that his uh, that his teaching connects the dots in ways that many uh, many seem to miss. Um, and and I, I think I took just about every class he ever taught at the seminary, at least when we were there. Um, I do have one story to tell, and that is, uh, I don't remember if you were in this class or not, Scott, but I remember taking a 500-level uh, class with him. I think it was on Chalcedonian Christology, okay? So this is, um, you know, fairly intense sort of class, and he was, uh, and he was lecturing on 
the some subtleties of Nestorianism. I don't remember precisely what the question was, but he asked a question and there were maybe a dozen of us in the room and we all kind of looked at each other like, I just have no idea what he's talking about at this moment. <laughs> um, and, you know, sometimes there are moments when, when that happens. And one of my, uh, one of my uh, classmates, actually a classmate of yours, uh, said, uh, sir, you know, <laughs> quoting <laughs> Revelation 7. It was, uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. Um, I, I think of that often. But, uh, yeah, 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 we wanted to highlight Dr. Weinrich. Um, I, I think that some pastors might would say that they are disciples of a certain professor or something yeah. like that. You know, I'm a I'm a, a scareite or I'm a nagelite or something like that. I've never really I've never really had one professor that I would say, okay, I want to be just like him. Yeah. Um, but certainly a uh, in that handful of uh, of professors that were highly influential to me, Dr. Weinrich would be uh, up pretty high on that list. Ditto here for, for sure. Yep, indeed so. And also, by the way, happy 70th birthday, Dr. Weinrich. Yes, which happened to birthday. have been this last weekend. So what's bringing joy this week? You got anything uh, cooking, Scott? Yeah, I um, this is a book that um, I've had for a little while that um, I've, as many times you buy books because you want to get them and their title's intriguing, but maybe you don't read it right away. And this is a book, it's called Beyond Smells and Bells, the wonder and power of Christian liturgy. Now, bear with me. It's 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 not by a Lutheran. It's not by a Roman Catholic. What? Um, the, yeah. And uh, he's um, the 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 author is a guy named Mark. I don't, I don't, his last name is G A L L I. So it's either Golly or Jolly or Golly probably. And um, I hope it's Jolly. Yeah, <laughs> that would be really nice. But the tagline on the cover of the book, I just just now noticed this, even though I've read the book, that there's a quote from Richard John Newhouse on the cover that says, a compelling invitation to meet Jesus in the heaven and earth of Christian liturgy. And why I like this book, Todd, is because this man comes from the evangelical world, but he has discovered the the beauties of Christian tradition and Christian liturgy and sacramental theology. I think he, I mean I'm pretty sure he's reformed. So I mean he's going to have different understandings of those things. But he's he is it's always fascinating to me when someone comes from a free church tradition where they don't have these customs or they're even taught that these are evil vestiges right. of you know papism. And yet they discover things, and and so when he says beyond smells and bells, you know he likes liturgy and he likes bells, but he and he likes incense, and he's but he's trying to say that there's real meat in this, there's real meat in the liturgy, there's real meat in the customs and the traditions, and it's not just aesthetics, it's not just smells and bells, and I think that that's it's a short book, it's a fast read, um, you know, like I said, he's not a Lutheran, so some of his conclusions on on things won't be exactly as the same as I would put them, but I find it important to. To, to see these areas where other Protestants and other Roman Catholics share with us some values and we can build on a little bit of common ground there. And that when they're discovering something that we are also trying to rediscover or maintain, it's kind of cool. So that's well, what's you just me made happy. me. Ch- cool. You just made yeah. me change my pick. Thanks a lot. Oh, no. <laughs> were you going to do um, going to do a, a No, I wasn't going to do that book, although that would have been hilarious. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that book reminds me. Of another book that I that I read, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago. Uh, I I'll have to look it up. It'll be in the show notes. Um, the 
I think the name of the book is Saints, Signs, and Symbols by oh, Balthazar yeah. Fisher. Now, Fisher's a uh, uh, Roman Catholic theologian and is one of the chief architects behind Vatican II. And so, you know, there's good and bad to that, I suppose. But this this book is really a series of homilies that he that he gave. Um, some of them uh, homilies he gave at an elementary school, which is kind of interesting. But uh, homilies that he gave on ritual action. So mm. he, you know, so there's a little sermon or sermonette on making the sign of the cross or on. Uh, the baptismal rite, or why do we kneel? Why you know what? All of these different things, and and it's quite intriguing because he sort of draws out what what I would call the the purpose of ceremony. And for us as Lutherans, the purpose of ceremony is to teach the gospel. Um, obviously, he's not qu- putting it in quite that language, but that's that's really what's happening. And it's a it's a great little book. Um, it's I don't think it's in print anymore. I had to buy it uh, used off of Amazon, but it's a uh, but it's short book, hundred pages, maybe something like that. So that's number one. Um, number two is something that I wanted to wanted to mention. I forgot about last week, and that is uh, something I will call well, I, not just me. Uh, it is called the Five Year Journal, um, published by that most addictive of. Uh, of companies, namely Levenger. This is a, it's a little journal that for each page, it'll have um, room for five entries uh, and each one is five lines. So April 25th, I just pulled up to a page and then it's got sections for each one. I have used this for, um, for years to keep track of pastoral care things. So if I commune someone, if I uh, if someone dies, if I baptize someone, if I do a wedding, whatever it is, it goes in the book. That way I have a physical record uh, of, you know, what are the what are the ordinary and extraordinary pastoral acts that I do on a regular basis. Right now this book happens to be on sale for $20. It's got a nice um, kind of heavy cloth bound cover. It's a it's a great Great little volume, and uh, I I often give this as a present if I go to do an ordination or an installation for a new pastor. I will I will pick up one of these books um, and give that as a gift because it's it, it's also nice to be able to go back and look and see. Oh yeah, I have actually been doing stuff. I'm not. Yeah. I'm. We don't always see the the fruits of our labors, but uh, but something like this can can help you to remember. Oh yeah, I baptized so and so on this day twelve years ago. Maybe I should write them a note or whatever yeah. it is. So that's my uh, that's so my you, second pick. You, you use yours as a way to keep track of pastoral acts. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's fascinating. I like. Yeah, it. I just it's. Looked it up. Yeah, it's uh, it's twenty bucks, so it's not it's not super expensive. Um, and, and it will actually last for a long five years. I think for my purposes, it's going to be more like a 10 or 15 year journal because it's going to take a while before I start to get down to the bottom year in multiple pages. Um, but yeah, it's a, I, I have found it very, very useful. Yeah. So you can find show notes for this episode at the crux of the matter.net slash podcast 
slash eight. And I hope you will uh, hope you will do so. Uh, you can find us by emailing us at feedback at the crux of the matter dot net. He's Scott. I'm Todd. I hope you will uh, tell us what you thought or if we're heretics on anything or whatever it might be. But uh, I'm glad that you joined us this week. Say goodbye to the fine people for us, Scott. Goodbye, <laughs> fine care. people. Keep listening. <laughs> All right, bye.